Did you know that 85% of your engine wear occurs at startup? Yes, that is correct. And this is where Lower the Friction comes in by putting a protective lubricating barrier on all moving parts. This now gives you full-time protection to make your engine last longer, run smoother, give you better performance, and improve fuel economy. People across the country are reporting some very exciting results. Go to LowerTheFriction.com, place your order, and enter in promo code SOS to get 5% off of your order. That's LowerTheFriction.com. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the weekly Secrets of Saturn livestream. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. Joining me this week are Wayne McCroy and Crow777. Baldini needs the week off again, but he's supposed to be joining us next week. So anyway, how's everyone doing? I hope you had a very nice holiday. This week, we're going to tear apart a section of the very large book called Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, uh, a book that I'm under the impression was not supposed to get out to the uh, profane, as they like to call us. But uh, Wayne, do you want to give a little background here before we delve in? Yeah, man, just want to wish everybody a uh, happy new year ahead and a, a new era coming up here. Uh, we are actually firmly on the other side now, so I'm expecting any time things should start looking up. Um, you know, for those of us who uh, are aware of how things operate. And as long as we keep our focus and our intention on the good side, things will start to shift for the better, as long as enough of us can do that. But uh, anyway, back to the topic at hand here. We're going to tear apart Dr. Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope tonight. Uh, we're looking at a section of it towards the end of the book. It's a very long, long book. And we're going to go into chapter number 75, the United States and the middle class crisis, and see how all this got uh, put into uh, motion today, everything we're going through. And it's very revealing, especially on the political side of things. And who was Dr. Quigley, people might ask? Uh, he was a professor at Georgetown University. Uh, he also, I believe he went to or taught at Harvard at one point, and also Princeton. I believe he taught at Princeton as well, and he was actually a big mover and shaker within the establishment, and was actually Bill Clinton's mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, isn't, so, isn't Bill, George? Isn't Georgetown like ground zero for some of the Tavistock shenanigans? You got that right. It's also a highly connected to the Jesuits uh, no. type of school, and and Doctor Quigley also, uh, you know, ran point for the Department of Defense and the U.S. Navy, and did all kinds of projects with them and, and things of that nature. And actually was involved in the space program in the 1950s. Mm. The hell so, you uh, say? That, mm. <laughs> yeah. So if that should give you an indication of, of just who this guy rubbed elbows with, um, he also put out a very good book. If people want to look this one up, because th this book we're going through, it's called Tragedy and Hope. And it's a very long, extensive book that goes over the history of modern Western civilization. It's like 1,100 pages or something like that. It's a very big book. But he has a much smaller book that's very more succinct and points out a lot of the secret society aspect of things. And that one is called The Anglo-American Establishment. So if people want to look that one up to get kind of more of a background on uh, how the political class actually functions in the world and who these people are and uh, what they do. But uh, tonight we're just going to look at uh, 
this little section of tragedy and hope and give a little bit of a connection as to how things have gone politically here and the things and events that have led up to where we are as a society right now uh, because western culture um, is uh, pretty much well defined within uh, what dr quigley writes here uh, how it was kind of engineered to be how it is uh, so um, like jason had alluded to the establishment was not very happy when this book came out uh, because they were afraid, you know, some of their uh, secrets of how they operate would get out into the public. But lo and behold, most of the American public or the public in general has no interest in reading an 1,100-page book about boring history and politics. <laughs> so very few people actually picked it up and actually looked at it. So that being the case, uh, it was kind of hidden out in plain sight. So uh, we're going to go ahead and, and, you know, try and uh, put our little uh, bit of synopsis to uh, this writing here tonight. Now, we don't have a, a link for a document like we usually do. This is an actual book and a very large one at that. So I'm going to try and read the sections that I'm going to read slowly and distinctly so it's as easy as possible for everyone to follow along. Uh, this book is, what, weighing over a thousand pages long, it looks like. Almost 1,100. Yeah, like 1,100 pages or something like that. It is a tome. It's, it's, it's extensive. <laughs> All right, so what we're going to read from tonight, and it's based off of a Crow's suggestion earlier, uh, we're going to touch on a little bit on political stuff uh, due to a lot of what we're covering. And as a matter of fact, before we get started, Crow, maybe we should talk for a moment about what we recorded yesterday and what's going to be released. Uh, are we doing it at midnight? Yeah, or very close to midnight. Um, 283 will go out, which is Jason and I making a run at breaking the red-blue spell, the division spell, the mind trap that politics is. And we're going to prove, basically, it's provable how we got our parties. It's provable who did it, and it's provable what they were put in place to do. So we're trying to start the new year here in the new era, offering people a way to put down the frickin' crack pipe and get out of the blue-red blue, blue red paradigm. Yeah, Crow's just been on a couple of shows recently, so shout-out to uh, David Avocado Wolf, great guy who was just on with us as well. Uh, SGT Report, even though the bastards at YouTube took him out, he is still thankfully going strong. He's awesome. And I don't know the nice lady you were just on with. I don't remember her name. <clears throat> her name's Amina. Um, oh, actually, hold on. I got a window up with her channel. I can say it. Um, her YouTube channel is Amina M, so her first name is A-M-I-N-A, -A, and then there's a capital M, space capital M. Amina M is the YouTube channel. She just now posted an interview. I guess she heard of me through Sergeant Report, um, and, and I did the whole political run while I was on Sergeant Report, which was a channel basically founded mostly, as I guess you would say, right-wing right political ideas um, but I had a very positive response from that audience um, so it kind of shows the era we're going into is about knowing things and people are more than ready or a lot of grown-ups are ready to examine uh, things that they might need to get rid of all right so what my microphone is trying to run away from me here give me one second folks you shouldn't be buying microphones with feet Jason because they tend to do that it's really weird yeah I've heard that I've heard that <laughs> We should uh, cue up Alice go. Cooper before we read this. Maybe welcome to my nightmare. Yeah, right. Like 
All right, so we're going to do Chapter 75, The United States and the Middle Class Crisis. The character of any society is determined less by what it is actually like than by the picture it has of itself and of what it aspires to be. From this point of view, American society of the 1920s was largely middle class. Its values and aspirations were middle class, and power or influence within it was in the hands of middle class people. On the whole, this was regarded as proper, except by iconoclastic writers who gained fortune and reputation, simply by satirizing or criticizing middle-class customs. All right, so there's a good bit we could break well, down right there. Yeah, we're, we're, we could end the show here now, guys. Now, <laughs> now you know what's happened to us. Where's our middle class now? I think they finally put a coffin nail in it in, what, 2008, when the largest housing market... Well, first, it was before that when they wrote loans two, three, four, five to anyone who would have them, and then they foreclosed on more property than's ever been foreclosed on. So that was the biggest transfer of ownership of homes, or so-called ownership. And then in 08, uh, that was the last straw when they crashed the economy again. That was the death knell for the middle class that once was. I bumped my computer, now it's all cockeyed. Oh, well. Oops. Oops. Well, anyway, I, I could put a little point on uh, the very first sentence here. It says the character of any society is determined less by what it is actually like than by the picture it has of itself and of what it aspires to be. And this is an important idea to keep in mind, especially when you look at books like uh, The Changing Images of Man. That uh, was another book that we had looked at, and it's something I, I had researched uh, writing my newest book right now. Uh, this book, The Changing Images of Man, uh, written by social engineers. And what they talk about is the ways in which they reshape society's vision of itself, of man, the, the image of man, who man thinks he is, and what his place in the universe is. And that's exactly what they do, and they do this in many ways, a lot of which is through use of entertainment platforms, uh, using ideas like mythology, in order to uh, change people's views of themselves. And we could see we're entering a new era here, and they're trying to change the image of man, of what man thinks of himself. So that's an important sentence right there. That we could do just the whole show basically based on that sentence just in that regard, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on that. But uh, it's just important for people to realize this is talking about shaping people's view of the world and of who they are and what the world is and what, what it all entails. So it, just in that first sentence alone, uh, Dr. Quigley is revealing a very important idea. We should probably take a moment to talk about our loving friend, Edward Bernays, who really got his big start in the 1920s and really started to shape that middle class into what, well, whatever it is he desired at the time, whoever hired him, he took it and he, he ran with it. He got good at what he did. And I'd say that no other person single-handedly, at least, has influenced Western culture as much as Edward Bernays. No, but I, I would add, you know, everybody knows he's the double nephew of Sigmund Freud. Um, and most people understand that between Freud and Jung, um, this in, in our era of knowing, uh, these are the guys that figured out how to hack the human mind. And as a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say is Jung's work is much more important than Freud's um, because he got into the occult nature of things and some of the indigenous ideas. But the point is, is when Bernays went out, 
it's almost like he had clinical proof that what he was about to try was going to work in a way. Yeah, no doubt that guy knew what he was doing as far as the social engineering aspects of things. Uh, he was basically one of the big pioneers of the whole science that is social engineering that people are largely unaware of. I mean, this, this stuff's going on, whether people want to believe it or not. They actively seek to change our views and change our behaviors, and we see that going on in spades right now, don't we? They've, they've changed the behavior of almost every person in the world. Uh, strangely enough, as, as that may sound, even though, you know, to a lot of people, they would view uh, wearing a mask or something like that as a very minor thing. Still, think about that. Think about how that has changed uh, our behavior as a society, first of all, and uh, the ramifications of that upon the environment and stuff as well. I read an article today that uh, they're estimating that there's 1.5 billion masks now floating in the oceans of the world. So what does that tell you? Uh, it's not about any kind of safety type thing. It's more about engineering behaviors into the people. So you can see this is really going on. And this is, um, you know, a, a small portion of what uh, Dr. Quigley is talking about in here, the way that they helped to shape the middle class into what it is and how they've changed the middle class from what it was originally here back in the 1920s, what he's talking about here to what it is today. And one of the tools that he mentions here in this first paragraph is uh, he says here on the whole, this was regarded as proper except by iconoclastic writers who gained fortune and reputation simply by satirizing or criticizing middle-class customs. So who's he talking about there? Well, guys like George Orwell, uh, you know, um, the, the other ones, the Huxleys, uh, mm -hmm. people like that, uh, you know, and other writers, Mark Twain, uh, people like that who've, who kind of shaped our Western culture into what it is and pointed out uh, you know, these different flaws with the middle class and, and really helped to steer uh, the agenda of where they wanted the middle class to go. Well, by the opening line of the first paragraph we read, you can tell the man's on point. As a matter of fact, he says exactly what James Shelby Downard said. James Shelby Downard was quoted as saying, the highest power anyone can hold in this world is the control of the minds of men. Um, it goes on, that quote, but we're talking about the same thing, and when we apply it to now, um, when I was in the 70s and young, this was the greatest nation in the world. Everyone was proud of it. We were best at everything. We couldn't be beat for the most part. Now, if I asked everyone, what do you think about the United States of America? And you can see right there that what's actually changed doesn't level with what we think about it. Um, and that's how they're doing it. And I would further point out, anyone who's never read Carl Jung, you should. Um, because these are the these are the playbooks, some of the early playbooks that they use. And when you begin to understand how they view how the human mind works, it gives you a way not to be affected if you understand. You know, this whole mask thing pisses me off in so many different ways. I've said months and months and months ago about where are the environmentalists squawking about all the garbage that you knew damned well was going to pile up super quick from all the zombies having to wear their masks everywhere they go. Scared to death, like everyone else, afraid to be an adult and stand up in a room with a lot of people and say, what you're doing here isn't right. And that's a difference of a time, too, because in the 70s, plenty of people stood up in crowded rooms and said, this isn't right. Everyone's too afraid to do it now. Yep. Yeah, it's it's really terrible with what they've done with this whole idea, because it even still, 
they've they talk about this new surge in cases and stuff that is allegedly going on right now and they blame the folks who haven't worn the mask well i could tell you where i live uh, i've been going out without a stupid mask since this whole thing began back in march and all those times that i've gone out i could count on one hand the number of other people i've encountered out in public who weren't wearing a mask so that really doesn't stand up to scrutiny no it doesn't uh, honestly that that idea that it's because of the ones that aren't that this is still going on that's nonsense on the face of it uh and it's it's just it it's astounding that people actually buy into this nonsense and are still doing it and like almost 10 months later it's ridiculous already uh, and that's just goes to show how powerful that these ideas that they use are. It just shows you what the, these tools that they use uh, for this uh, quote unquote mind control programming, I guess you could call it, uh, it, how well that it actually works. And it's it's a lot of simple things. It's, you know, shaming your neighbor and stuff, you know, try and make them feel bad, call them an Anna killer, that kind of thing. And it, it's it's worked largely for them. And the, the human mind is has fallen a far way from what it was decades ago. It really has. And, and that, that shows right now with the, the state of our society. Yeah, well, it, it shows that the years and years and years of trying to break the minds of everybody, the, break the society, it succeeded. Because they, for the most part, people are, are doing something that should be absolutely common sense that it's bad for you. Breathing your own fumes and having all that crap that's going to collect on those nasty things and you're breathing that in probably up to hours a day or at least possibly, that's that's disgusting. That's absolutely disgusting and people just don't freaking get it. But anyway. It's also, it's also spiritual suicide if you want to look at it carefully. Yeah. These people, you know, the one thing that astonished me was how easily they prevented people from going to places of worship. That blew me away. Yeah. Um, how, e how easily that went. There wasn't even a peep or a fight. Um, but if you want to take it a step further, everyone's putting a corporate veil over their spirit. Um, and there's going to be, there's a price to pay for these things in the long run. Um, and we'll have to get there, but get ready. You know, there's going to probably be some drooling zombies around us by the time they start handing out shots. You know, I'm glad you brought up the houses of worship thing because I, I said this on, uh, with Jaron and David on Monday on TFR church folks, especially here they all talk. So if you had one church that had the cojones to say, no, we're not doing this nonsense anymore. Everything is going to be, we're just going to act totally normal. Like nothing is going on because nothing is going on. They would spread that quicker than the freaking coronavirus because all well, these churches intermingle. And I know this from working at Guitar Center, all the church people hung out with each other. Even if they didn't go to the same church, the musicians would intermingle, the pastors would get together, like all these kinds of things. So if one church had the balls to stand up and say, we're done, we're not doing this anymore. All 500 of you that fit in the building come without a mask, that's it. It didn't even take balls though, because church is exempt from influence from the government as plain as day in documents we want to pretend matter. Um, you, the church cannot put, or the government cannot come in and subjugate religious institutions in any way. That's the separation of church and state is a piece of that. The point is, is any of those places of worship could have said, screw you, government, this is a religious institution or whatever they'd like to call it. Right. It's much different than those people holding business licenses, which are going to get screwed with by the commerce system. 
that they're engaged in. Right. Yeah, it is kind of astounding to me how quickly a lot of these churches just bowed down to the whole thing. Um, and it, it's it's sad, really. I mean, it, it speaks volumes of, once again, how far we've fallen as a people, how far our minds have fallen and our spirits have fallen. It, they've been whittling away at us for the longest time now, just little by little, uh, just whittling away what it means to be ethical and what it means to be, you know, a, a solid person or, you know, what things really matter and, and what hold value in this world. They've been slowly eaten away at that with the hyper-materialism. Yeah, that, that's kind of what's, that's yeah, kind of where we're say, at. I was going to say, Wayne, but doesn't that also speak to the quality of the religious institutions that we do have? They didn't do their job because people would not bow so easily to a spiritual tradition that had been doing a better job of instilling what a spiritual endeavor is actually about. Not just read the surface narrative of this story over and over and over, um, because that's what a lot of them were doing, and it shows a failure at all levels. Um, but in a way, you know, that's how change comes. What's the old cliche? It's darkest before the dawn. That's probably where we are. Um, what's going on here is not going to stand because it's built on nonsense and lies, so it can't stand. The question becomes, how long do we have to put up with it? But I would point out, there's all these systems that failed coming into this. Once they fail, they're, they're failed, so you can only go up from there. And I agree with your assessment there 100%. I think it is darkest before the dawn, and that's where we're sitting right now. So it's it's one of those things where... This could go either way right now. It could get much, you know, much, much worse for us, or it could get much, much better. And it's just a matter of when will people stand up and say enough? And when people do stand up and say enough, that's when things will get exponentially better for us. Uh, but until that point, the more that they bow down to this, the harder things are going to get. And, you know, we're at that crossroads right now. Uh, to use the alchemical type of a, a reference there, we're at this crossroads where we have to choose which direction are we going. And we do that all in individual ways, but enough, if enough of us as individuals choose to, to go the better path, then uh, what's going to happen is we could turn this thing around and have something much, much better than what the current system is. And, you know, that, that's the thing. We all have to make that decision. And the problem is right now, many people are stalled at this crossroads individually because they don't know what to do. So they're just going along to get along and uh, just doing what they're told in hopes that things will improve on their own or that, uh, you know, the this external uh, government force or whatever is going to say, poof, things are magically better now. It's okay to go back to how things were or, you know, to, to move on to this quote-unquote new normal that they want. And that's the thing. People are going to have to stand up and, and say, you know what? There's so much falsity going on right now. We've had enough, and we're not going to tolerate it anymore. We're going to live our lives. Because that's the thing. These people, a lot of them, the vast majority of the people of the world have put their lives on hold for the past nine, ten months because of this nonsense and it's not right and people are going to eventually i think get to the point where they say you know what enough of this and i'm surprised not you know as many people I, I, I think now it's been going have woken on. up to it already yeah i think it's yeah, been it, going on when we don't we don't see it um but I, I think it's certainly been going there's another thing too is you know we've we've all been looking at how this all works since well before 9 11 a lot of us 
and you know there's always another shoe to drop. And so when they begin to lose control and the numbers are going in a direction they don't like, you know there's going to be an emergency. You know, if you kill a puppy, you get a reaction. When that doesn't get a reaction, you get more puppies. Um, then you burn them, then you blow them up because you can do anything on video. Uh, the point I would make is the society needs to grow up so that, you know, that take example that they're using now, the race card, um, which through my lifetime has always worked. There's a few of them, abortion, religion, race, and politics. Um, you can make society lose their mind easily. I can walk down the streets in my neighborhood and there are actually people who are the most educated people we have in this country, doctors, surgeons, who have signs in front of their house that say Black Lives Matter. I've seen commercials on television that say no lives matter until black lives matter. I don't think it gets much more blatant than that. No, that's none of that is correct. What is correct is all lives matter. That is the only thing that is correct, and any subset of that is a manipulation. And to try to say no lives matter until some other thing is the ultimate manipulation. And to as a society, we begin to grow up enough to not fall for these things you're going to see attempted wars started probably if this slips the wrong way or Lord knows. Lord only knows what the emergency to try to get everyone to quit looking at the right hand, 9-11 uh, style. Oh, look what just happened while we do all these other things. Um, we've got to get beyond these things. But then again, how many people do you suppose in the country, if asked, was 9-11 a real event, would say yes? Probably not very many at this point. You know, maybe we should... Uh clarify for anyone still confused about the concept of COVID cases versus people being sick. Sure, some people are getting sick. That's not what they're reporting. They're reporting on the number of cases, meaning they're bullshit tests showing positive. Well, fruit and goats are showing positive too in their stupid tests. And we've had plenty of people on to explain how these tests are bullshit. So just just get yeah, over don't, it already. Don't forget well, that. The don't get the test because I'm I'm starting to get correspondence that that nasal swab might yeah, be a doing concern. I, I'm um, very here. Here's the thing, Crow and Wayne and everyone listening. I still don't know anybody who's into whatever you want to call what we do, the truth movement. We don't get sick. We're not having problems. Nobody's got more than a cold, and most people do get an annual flu and things like that anyway. So I don't know what's really truly going on, but. It's not what's not what they're saying. Well, it's, it's pretty simple, man. Just look at the death rate. Um, the it death rate changed. will be lower. Yeah, well, it's actually gone down a little bit by some counts. But the point would be if you're going to close the world, you would expect bodies stacking up to the ceiling. In other words, everyone should know multiple people who are no longer here, which isn't the case. Right. I get correspondence from people who work in the medical field. I don't even know how many I get in a month that say their hospital's nowhere near capacity. Um, they're building these field hospitals that are just going unused. The point is, is you know, anyone who can think understands this is something else altogether, but probably what's going to happen here is we're going to see the monetary reset that's been promised because I know people who should know and they're claiming it's for sure coming in 2021. Um, watch how quickly when some big event is is successful that they're after, all the other stuff we've been worried about goes away. Um, it, it's, it's childish to act in this way. That's all I can say. As a society, we got a lot of growing up to do, and it'll be tough uh, if people continue to be glued to their televisions because uh, their brains aren't working right. No, and that's a lot of it is the, uh, the media, the social media, the television 
the newspapers, all of that stuff, all that stuff that, you know, is controlled by like six corporations or less. I mean, depending, I know you guys have whittled it down to like one or two, but like, you know, it's all controlled at the top by the same people and they're the ones pushing the narrative and people just eat it up. And it, it's crazy that they do when you could look around your neighborhood and see no evidence of this really going on. But yet, you know, people buy into the whole narrative here. It's it's ridiculous. I was going to say, Jason, you forgot when you were mentioning that a goat and a melon tested positive. So did a can of soda. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> yeah, that was actually the Austrian uh, parliament. Uh, one of the guys was standing up there, one of their, their Congress people or whatever they're called, their, their parliament people was standing up there and, uh, you know, in front of them live there actually ran a test on a can of soda and it tested positive and proved his point that it was all nonsense. So <laughs> that happened in Austria. Uh, so there you go. We have a case demic, not a pandemic. That's that, that proves it. These well, this, things this shows another major failure. Cause as I pointed out, some of the most educated people we have in our country are working in a medical establishment and they're not doing their job. They swore an oath. Um, Many of them, the Hippocratic Oath or other things, um, even if they hadn't sworn the oath, the only reason they exist there is to help people who are suffering or sick. And they didn't stand up. They didn't hold their ground and they didn't call bullshit when they should have. Because I'm not a doctor. And if I can know what I know, how in the hell is it that they can't? And that, too, shows the failure of education at a certain level, because at some point it becomes a bit like brainwashing, where it wasn't about learning at all. It was about being trained into acting a certain way and pushing a certain line of beliefs. And so we're seeing failure upon failure upon failure. I think it's safe to say that the era we're going to head into, the systems we exist under, will not resemble what we grew up being used to. Um, well, this... They can't. Go ahead. I'm done. Oh. They, they, this whole thing seems to be a smokescreen for this great reset. We've broken that down. Uh, you've got the James Bond villain Klaus Schwab up there making different videos and putting them out. This whole thing, if I had to guess, whether or not there's there's a real illness or not, seems to be a smokescreen for what the, these guys want to do. And all this really truly is is the old pig that people like Alex Jones would call the New World Order. Well, they've put new lipstick on it, and now they're calling it the Great Reset. Or as Klaus Schwab would say, the Great Reset. Well, it's not, it's, you know, after people have heard the political episode we do tonight, they should be able to put together why I just alluded to the monetary reset. The central banks control politics and thereby everything else. Um, or for that matter, back in the day before there was left and right, they controlled kings and queens. It's always been this way for a long, long time because they controlled the currency, um, which means they controlled the wars. If they wanted a war to happen, they funded it. If they wanted one side to win, they funded them and defunded the other side. There's yep. case after case where you can show this going on. So what we're looking at here, logically, um, whether it can be proved out or not, is there's a smoke screen that's got everyone's attention. And it's on everyone's face and it's in all the fear everywhere. But why is that smoke screen there? Got to be for the monetary reset, right? Fiat currency couldn't go another year. There was no more debt to be. Everyone was tapped. They couldn't invent more debt. In 33, they turned us all into enemy combatants to secure the debt. Um, the people that I know that trade in gold and silver actually accurately predicted that fiat would not make it past 2020. 
since they're printing it like it's just air right now, I think we can say that that was accurate um, because you can't use a system that's been so inflated. So what's actually coming is the ironclad reset of the banking concerns because that's what controls everything is the banking concerns. Right. And before we get back to this document, let's uh, cover two other points that we just brought up during this little chat. I'm well aware of the fact that churches have to be five or not have to be are 501c3 a lot of the times, meaning that they're federal tax exempt, not state tax, mind you, because it's another issue I dealt with at Guitar Center all the time. They're federal tax exempt. And they probably do, at least the mega churches probably do get told certain things what they can and can't talk about. But I'm talking about more things like your little church down the road where there's, I mean, drive down to downtown Covington where I live and there, there's a dozen of them on one street. I'm talking about those kind of churches. And even if they are 501c3, who cares? It doesn't matter. Those kinds of churches are the ones that need to have the nuggets to do stuff. Uh, second of all, hospitals, as we've been told by multiple medical professionals now, are almost always at capacity. This is normal. The big problems we're seeing now is because all these hospitals have laid off tons of employees because their sections of money making, which is the uh, elective surgeries, as we've been uh, told about, they're not doing those right now because of, quote unquote, the beer bug. So they're breaking it. They're breaking it like everything else. Yeah. So, the, so I, I would suggest that the idea here is how is it that the big box stores are allowed to be open, but all the ma and pa's had to go away? That makes zero sense. If any of this was real, that means a big box holds more people. Anyone can do the math there. So what's going on is they're queuing up the multinational conglomerates to succeed, and they're wiping out as many small people as they can. They're queuing up state governments to fail because most of them have committed treason um, or something close to it by mm. being dictators um, in a country that's supposed to be anatomically opposed to such ideas but then it comes down to the hospital so they're handing out this fiat currency what was it 30 some thousand dollars to write on an admit slip covid uh, i think it was closer to 70 60k or 70k if they could put that on a death cert but they're handing out fiat currency so if the reset comes around and it significantly devalues or does something um, to make the currency less palatable than it already is, what they're basically do is set up every system to be required to get on the government tit. Everyone will need a bailout. And they won't just need it once, they'll need it every month because so many people will be unemployed. A hospital just can't recover um, from that kind of a loss. And like you pointed out, their bread and butter has been cut off. Can't have your nose job, no boob jobs, no nothing. Um, which is where they make their money. So each of the systems has been set up to monetarily fail. And again, I will point you back to why the smokescreen is here. In my view, I think it's logically obvious. It's the bankers getting their money, their new money scheme in place so they can keep their iron fist around everything. It's got to be. And just as a uh, proof of what you're saying there, Crow, uh, anybody could go ahead and look in a search browser anywhere and uh, look this up. Within this past nine months, the top billionaires of the world made something to the effect of $1.5 trillion or, or something to that effect from what I've seen. Uh, they've had net growth of like $1.5 trillion. So, uh, you know, it's it's crazy. That's just proof in the pudding there that this is actually what's really going on. It's a phenomenally large transfer of wealth from private individuals and small business interests to the big box retailers and, you know, the, the billionaires of the world. So, 
you know, that's that's proof right there of what you're saying. That's absolutely what's going on. And once again, this whole all leads to the idea of the universal basic income, which has been a talking point of these people for the longest time. So that's exactly what they want to bring about. All right, so let's get back to this document. I see Dave J's with us. Hello, Dave J. It's been a while. How you doing, brother? Good to see you. To be sure, even the most vigorous defenders of bourgeois America did not pretend that all Americans were middle class. Only the more important ones were. But they did see the country as organized in middle class terms, and they looked forward to a not remote future in which everyone would be middle class, except for a small shiftless minority of no importance. To these defenders, and probably also to the shiftless minority, American society was was regarded as a ladder of opportunity up which anyone could work his way on rungs of increased affluence to the supreme positions of wealth and power near the top. Wealth, power, prestige, and respect were all obtained by the same standard based on money. This, in turn, was based on a pervasive emotional insecurity that sought relief in the ownership and control of material possessions. The basis for this may be seen most clearly in the origins of this bourgeois middle class. And of course, the middle class didn't even really exist uh, pre, uh, what will we say? Probably pre-1800s, uh, really. Uh, the, the 1800s, people were either they kind of had money or they were farmers or they were destitute, barely making ends meet in the uh, in the factories and living in the slums. So it probably would have been just the merchants that were a bit above the average people. And since the merchant class wasn't that big, yeah, it would have been smaller. And actually, if you want to be fair about it, whatever happened pre-crash um, of the stock market, what you really see is the power of a healthy society in the 50s, at least the beginning of the 50s. I think at that point where they marked the high point, uh, which is just before I was alive, um, there were 37% unionized in this country. Um, and that's another thing they've dismantled. And people like to argue whether it's a good thing or not. Why bother? I can tell you right now, at the golden age, the high point where everyone was living much better than we are now, 37% of the country was unionized. And to this day, um, they've pretty much dismantled all that, too. Um, I, I would say the uh, divide in the classes, like pre-1900, was more uh, of the, you know, like like Jason said, most people were like farmers and were pretty much self-sufficient. So there really wasn't this uh, huge materialist push like there is now going into the 1900s. Uh, people were pretty much self-sufficient. They made their own clothes. They, you know, gathered their own food. They pretty much took care of themselves. Uh, they didn't have like a lot of these luxury items and stuff like we're used to in today's society. And that uh, merchant class was very small because there were very few things the average person really needed to buy from that merchant class. So, you know, that's why we had just the two basic classes, just your regular folks and those who might have been a little bit wealthy. Uh, you know, for whatever reason. And then, you know, very few merchant class type people in there. So y you could see where, come the turn of the 1900s there, they kind of ramped this all up. I mean, this is, you know, the time when you're talking about uh, these power players like the Rockefellers and all, all these people, The you know, through the from the mid-1800s up through the early 1900s like gathering like massive amounts of wealth and, and you know, utilizing different materials uh, to really 
like grab their place in society as you know respected wealthy people with prestige and all of that stuff and you know your average person was still just well you know i i might need to uh buy just this or that but for the most part most of the people were self-sufficient and that's something that really came to an end with the uh, advent of this middle class is people became less self-sufficient and uh, were kind of herded into the cities and lost a lot of the skills that they used to have that's right all right let's see where we're at here I lost my place. There we go. A thousand years ago, Europe had a two-class two society in which a small upper class of nobles and upper clergy were supported by a great mass of peasants. The nobles defended this world, and the clergy opened the way to the next world, while the peasants provided the food and other materials needs for the whole society. All three had security in their social relationships in that they occupied positions of social status that satisfied their psychic needs for companionship economic security, a foreseeable future, and purpose of their efforts. Members of both classes had little anxiety about loss of these things by any likely outcome events, and all thus had emotional security. Now, here's uh, this is interesting that they're saying this because I'm researching for uh, an upcoming episode Crow and I are going to do on the destruction of the family, and what I've already found is that uh, pre, again, pre-1900s, when you had a far more agrarian society, probably about 80% agrarian, I would guess, you had what was called the extended family, and that means kind of everybody under one roof, and they all helped each other out. And what you sacrificed in the concept of privacy, you had stability. You had massive stability. So you had mom, dad, kids, grandparents, possibly cousins, aunts and uncles, all that, all living there, all helping each other out and all pitching in for the benefit of the family. That got wiped out as the decades went by for the concept of the nuclear family, which is just mom, dad, one or two kids maybe, uh, but no no more big families, no more extended family, and not even a whole lot of kids. Uh, not, not saying that nobody did it, but this is what happened as they started whittling us down. And when you lost that, I mean, we have to be really blunt here. A lot of the moralities went with it. And maybe you guys have something more to say about that, but looking back in history, that is what I see. Morality, not that people aren't, there are not that everyone isn't moral anymore, but a lot of the old school mor moralities kind of died with those concepts. Even those of us that are moral aren't moral in the same way as they were. And I would point out another thing about this period of time. If you go read a book like The Dwellings of the Philosophers, which is attributed to Falconelli, whoever that may or may not have been, it doesn't matter, the ideas are there. Um, those cathedrals, um, those paths to higher human beings built in glass and stone uh, before they began to dismantle them, uh, the claim made by the alchemists and their initiation from mouth to ear to mouth to ear is that when Notre Dame and a couple others were being built back in that time, it was built by the free time that people lived so well that they only had to work 14 weeks or something like that uh, a year. And they had so much free time and so much skill from the jobs they did that they all pitched in to build those things. That's one of the claims which can be partially substantiated, except we get a problem because then the Vatican steps in and says, bullshit, we built that. Um, they didn't build that. They act like they built all the cathedrals. It's not true. Um, but the point I would make is even our level of morality now is tinged by what we have to face. I mean, you can't even log on to a website anymore without seeing an ad for pornography or something. 
So even our idea of morality is much different than it was in, say, the early 50s. In the early 50s, men were still wearing hats covering their heads, which people have lost track of what that was supposed to mean. And when a, when a woman entered the room, men stood up. I yeah, I mean, yeah, morality has, has really dropped a long way from those times, and that does go right along with this whole idea. I mean, there was more of a sense of, like, belonging. Uh, these were, you know, primarily, like, small communities and stuff like that, and they depended on each other, and, uh, you know, that that's the thing. And this has kind of gone away uh, with the advent of the middle class and the, the rise of our modern society, modern Western culture. Uh, things have really shifted away from those values, and that, that's the thing. The moral values have shifted in time along with all of those different uh, physical things and those needs uh, being met by families like like I said they were more self-sufficient back then now you don't have like a big family and you know we all farm the land or whatever and and you know this one does this and this one does that they were self-sufficient we don't have that these days we depend on outside sources for pretty much everything in our society so that's why we're so dependent upon economy or what we would call the economy uh, for these things because our basic needs are met through commerce now and this is where the big shift has taken place it uh, went from uh, a partially commercial type society to a, a full-on commercial society now to the point where even most of the farms are controlled by large corporate uh, entities now so it, it's it's not like it used to be where you would have your your small community and you know you knew the neighbors down the road or whatever and they grew their crops and you traded with them and you helped each other out and you know, these different ideas that that all went away with the rise of the middle class and the, the growth of this booming industrial era with the economy and, and that kind of thing. And people moving to the cities and becoming less concerned with, uh, you know, the idea of community or, you know, having your large extended family around you and all helping each other out. Uh, that kind of got crowded out with this whole idea of moving into these smaller dwellings in the big cities. So. That's kind of one of the reasons why uh, all these family values and things like that have fallen off as well, because we just don't have that anymore like it was in society at one point. But that's the kind of thing that I think Dr. Quigley's talking about here. Uh, they had more emotional security because of this, this stuff and having the companionship and everything. And they had economic security because they pretty much did everything for themselves. They were self-sufficient. They didn't depend upon the factory down the street to make their food or make their, you know, furniture or everything. make their clothing. Everything. Right. And that's kind of where things have really shifted. So with the rise of this middle class idea, uh, you're talking this all went to a materialist place really fast. And they attached value to what they call money or currency with it. Uh, and that's that's kind of where a lot of this is led. Now, we've always had some form of currency or, or money system from ages untold ago. But like the, the main focus of the hyper-materialist world we're in now is the acquisition of this money. And it's all fiat. And that's the problem. It's all an illusion. Not There's no, no true value behind it. And this is the system they got us all hooked into. And this is what uh, was the major advent for the rise of this middle class so when the middle class is built upon something of no real value well you know you could pull the 
or knock the legs out from under it real fast, can't you? And I think that's what we're seeing going on. Well, there's there's a, a physical kind of look in the mirror physical side to what you just said too, because back in that period of time, people were physically of a more substantial stature, and I'm not talking about size. I'm talking about being able to deal with you know two sets of staircases when you're in your golden years. Um, here where I am in New England, so many old houses, and almost always the bedrooms are on the second floor, which shows you back in the 30s and the 40s, old people were still going upstairs for the most part to get to their bedrooms. And the reason I noticed that is because now um, all the people in these houses that were built, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s even, um, they have a big problem because nobody can make it up the stairs when they get old now. As a matter of fact, just looking at a thing about an old French chateau, 79 steps uh, to the floor where all the bedrooms were. And that was the rich people who owned the chateau. So there's been a big fall in how healthy we are, um, how robust, to use a loaded word, um, we are as a species. Oh, by the way, people are asking what the hat used to symbolize. Can you explain that? Well, um, even if you took it at its most basic, whenever you came indoors, out of respect, you removed your hat. Whenever you met a member of the opposite sex, you removed your hat. Um, you can go back through any religion. To this day, Hebrews and others have a head covering. There's a direct idea of spirituality and morality connected to head coverings. Um, and though we had a much different version of it in the United States, um, and my wife were, and I were talking about this. When did hats go away here? Um, I still remember 60s. when I was, yeah, when I was very, very small, men would still have a hat that matched their um, their dress, their, their jacket, yeah. and their and, and their tie. Um, but the point is, is the main thing is it's a head covering, and you can look up the ideas behind that. But in the American usage, it was a way to show respect. Um, they still do it in the military. For people who've been in the Marine Corps, uh, I know Dave J will know this. You take off, they call it a cover in the Marine Corps, your hat. Um, you get busted if you go indoors and you don't remove your cover. Um, but here, a big part of it was to show respect. Take off your hat. That's like a salute, maybe, would be similar. To show respect to the individual you're doing that action for. And that's another thing, is the, the gender idea has been holding when Jason and I do the fall of the of the American family unit gender will be a big part of it because back in the period of time we're talking about women were held up on a pedestal way more appreciated as the life givers and the family rearers and being in charge of the home heart these ideas have fallen away hard and there was absolutely in any decent part of any town um, a whole different dynamic going on. Woman walks into the room, you stand up. She wants to sit down, you pull out her chair. You open the door for her. You tip your hat to her. Whole other set of respectful things going on between just average people in society. That's all lost. In the course of the medieval period, chiefly in the 12th and 13th centuries, watch that 13th century doesn't get lost, by the way, this simple two-class society was modified by the intrusion of a small but distinctly different new class between them. Because this new class was between, we call it middle class, just as we call it bourgeois after bourge, borg, 
uh, B-O-U-R-G, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, meaning town, from the fact that it resided in towns, a new kind of social aggregate. The two older established classes were almost completely rural and intimately associated with the land, economically, socially, and spiritually. The permanence of the land and the intimate connection of the land with the most basic of human needs, especially food, amplified the emotional security associated with the older classes. You know, there's a, there's an interesting parallel to look at in a place like Japan um, when they're so-called feudal days where all the people who were merchants or involved in commerce were looked down on by the samurai. And supposedly in a samurai household, the samurai men would have nothing to do with money for the most part for some period of time. The women handled that. But those social classes that were below were clearly making more money and money was viewed as almost a sinful thing um, by the classes that were above it and they controlled where they could go and do a whole different outlook on on that part of commerce which has basically decimated western culture because at the base of everything that's happened to us and is happening it's all it's welded to commerce you can't separate what's gone on from commerce. We all lived our lives in commerce thinking, oh, this is just what we do, never realizing all the strings that were attached to it. The new middle class of bourgeoisie who grew up between the two older classes had none of these things. They were commercial peoples concerned with exchange of goods, mostly luxury goods, in a society where all their prospective customers already had the basic necessities of life provided by their status. The new middle class had no status in a society based on status. They had no security or permanence in a society that placed the highest value on these qualities. They had no law, since medieval law was largely past customs and their activities were not customary ones, in a society that highly valued law. The flow of the necessities of life, notably food, to the new town dwellers was precarious, so that some of their earliest and most emphatic actions were taken to ensure the flow of such goods from the surrounding country to the town. All the things the bourgeois did were new things, all were precarious and insecure, and their whole lives were lived without the status, permanence, and security the society of the day most highly valued. The risks and rewards of commercial enterprise were reflected in the fluctuating fortunes of figures such as Antonio in The Merchant of Venice were extreme. A single venture could ruin a merchant or make him rich. This insecurity was increased by the fact that the prevalent religion of the day disapproved of what he was doing, seeking profits for taking interest, and could see no way of providing religious services to town dwellers because of the intimate association of the ecclesiastical system with the existing arrangement of rural landholding. You know, there's an interesting idea at play here. Um, I've thought about it a lot. Is it possible to have commerce and money and still have a highly spiritual society. And I'm beginning to think it's not. And it's being reflected in what I just said about Japan, how they held the merchant just above the peasant and the samurai and classes above could do anything they wanted to those merchants, but those were the people providing all the goods and making the majority of the money. Of course, everyone was getting taxed for rice and stuff, but you see the rice was the main thing they were after. They weren't taxing a lot of people for gold or other things they did but the main thing was is if you're under that fiefdom you had to put up so much rice in other words the thing that was really important was food to keep a living being alive and what's being demonstrated in what you just read 
is the idea. Is it true that when you get commerce in the way that we have it, that you've spiritually separated yourself from where we once were? It's a bit like the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden, in a way, if you think about it. And I think that's exactly the point Dr. Quigley was making in that paragraph there. Uh, that's basically how I would read it. Uh, you're looking at the, this new middle class was invented. It had no actual place or standing in society. And I use the word standing because that's that's an important thing uh, legalistically when we're looking at the legal aspect of things or, you know, as you guys explored through your law series. Uh, the middle class has no standing, uh, according to what we just read here. Uh, it doesn't belong in this system. And that, I think, is at the heart of a lot of the problem right now with our very much commerce-based society. Uh, because you're, you're talking, um, it's a precarious thing. It's saying here uh, that the most emphatic actions were taken to ensure the flow of goods from the surrounding country to the town. These new t town dwellers. This is a distinction <clears throat> between city dwellers or you know, the people that lived on the farms, the agrarian communities. Uh, so you're talking these these town folk, it created a new section of society. And this is like the creation of what would be modern day suburbs and things like that. Um, places that are, are outside of the realm of where, say, your, your merchant class or your merchants did business, and also outside of the, the area where materials raw materials were, were made or, or grown or food was grown that kind of thing the farming communities so you're in this separate little section uh kind of halfway in between those so it, it's a weird distinction that dr quigley makes here with that so it's it's kind of a class that uh, has no choice but to be dependent upon the other two classes for its very survival and this kind of leads to the idea of greed and materialism in, in more of a way then, because you have to actively work to get out of that kind of society to become more wealthy or to have your needs met in a, in a better way. So you, you have to acquire more of this wealth, this idea of wealth, in order to be able to acquire these goods or services from either side of the other two classes. Uh, so it, it makes that weird distinction here. So it kind of does denote this, this spiritual concern uh, that goes along with this whole commercial idea and, you know, how we've shifted from the society where we cared about our fellow human being and, and did everything to take care of them to the place where there's this massive indifference uh, to our neighbors and to our fellow man. And that's kind of, I think, the, the spiritual aspect of where this has led. I, I, it almost seems impossible to conduct commerce in the way we do and have any kind of a high spiritual standing as a society. But there's another tell I've been noticing. Um, the way everyone's being treated currently by what's gone on is a bit like the Thanos pre-echo in the Marvel movies, where Thanos's idea is we're going to wipe out half of everyone, we're going to do it fair, doesn't matter if you're a pauper or a rich prince, you're, you're on the table. Some of you are going to go. And that's what we're seeing. People who were typically wealthy in America probably had businesses if they earned it themselves. But think about how much the way our system works is for someone to have wealth at that point is usually carrying a lot of debt or there's a lot of switch over in money. So to be cut off in the way we were, in some cases, the people that were wealthy a year or two ago may be getting hit the hardest right now. Um, to bring it back around full circle, I've noticed a thing 
which I've been meaning to look into, and people, if they're interested, can. It almost appears to me that any place that has been labeled as a UNESCO World Heritage Site is a place that's going to be saved from any plan of malice that's going on. And furthermore, if it's a UNESCO non-tangible cultural heritage that's been marked by UNESCO, um, they're saying that this is important and it's going to be protected. And I haven't had time yet, but I don't even know. Are there any UNESCO World Heritage Sites in, in the United States? I, I haven't had time to look, um, but it goes to show uh, it relates directly to what we're seeing here. Um, there is no it doesn't matter if you had more fiat than someone else right now. You're getting treated up and down the line. Everyone's getting treated the same. Well, let's look that up real quick. That sounds interesting. Let's see what comes up here. Yeah, I'm, thinking, I'm almost thinking about positive. doing a show. List of World it. Heritage Sites in the United States. Here we go. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost UNESCO. UNESCO World Heritage Sites are yeah. here in the United States, and I can't name for sure where they are, but There's a I'm bunch positive of they're got to be. There's a bunch well, of them. I'm guessing if, if there are and you're living in or near one of them, you've got less concerns than others. But what's really interesting is the non-tangible or cultural UNESCO World Heritage things that have been protected because with that in Japan there's a crap load of them like they're making soy sauce in some 400 year old way or they're doing something like that or maybe weaving or making kimonos just things that have been recognized that they don't apparently want to lose off the face of the earth you just sent it to me Jason yep there's are the list are, are there any uh, all I know is if that's the case crow then we're doomed because we have no actual culture here in the United States so <laughs> well I was going to say <laughs> We, we got TV and some movies we like. Doesn't that count? <laughs> oh, I don't if, know if UNESCO would look at that. This is interesting. This one in Louisiana, I've heard of this, but I've never gone there. I, I want to, though. Poverty Point. It's one of those ancient mounds. There's lots of these in Louisiana. It's something I really want to investigate more. We have two, we have two and I've been to one of them. Mesa Verde, uh, which is at the very southern tip of Colorado, the supposed Anasazi cliff dwellings. That's one of them. So there's only two UNESCO sites, and the other one is Yellowstone National Park. Um, and let's see, second session, it happened in September 78. Uh, in total, oh, I guess there's 24. There's 24 sites. Oh, Frank Lloyd Wright building, some other structures. I don't know, I'll have to go through this, but I don't see any non-tangible or cultural assets. Because that would imply that the people who do it would be protected, right? Or the culture or the township or whatever, that they would be protected in some way. Hmm. Interesting list here. Yeah, I'll have to look at this more too. All right, let's get back to the document. For these and other reasons, psychic insecurity became the keynote of the new middle-class outlook. It still is. The only remedy for this insecurity of the middle-class seemed to... It seemed to be the accumulation of more possessions that could be a demonstration to the world of the individual's importance and power. In this way, for the middle class, the general goal of medieval man to seek future salvation in the hereafter was secularized to an effort to seek future security in this world by acquisition of wealth and its accompanying power and social prestige. But the social prestige from wealth was most available among fellow bourgeois rather than among nobles or peasants. Thus, the opinions of one's fellow bourgeoisie, by wealth and by conformity to bourgeois values, became the motivating drives of the middle classes, creating what has been called the acquisitive society, meaning to get acquisitions. Now, this is interesting because it sounds more like they're talking about today with everybody with, you know needing a new iPhone every eight months. 
Yeah, they're talking about the keeping up with the Joneses concept here. Mm-hmm. That's exactly that's what, what I was thinking. That is. And, and the psychological motivation that's behind it, right? So to prove you're rich, you got to have stuff. So hyper-materialism is the way we demonstrate that we're doing well. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. They've switched the social uh, kind right. of uh, status to uh, I have more stuff, therefore right. I have higher status. Whoever dies with the most toys, that false narrative that's exactly what he's talking about here. So this is kind of where that shift comes from. And you'll notice in the first sentence of this paragraph, he says, for these and other reasons, psychic insecurity became the keynote of the new middle class outlook. So he's invoking some different alchemical ideas there as well. Uh, I don't know, you know, how involved uh, Dr. Quigley was with any kind of occult type societies or anything like that. But I just find it a little bit uh, noteworthy that he uses the term keynote there Hmm. how how do you make all these points without having a little deeper vision i would suggest that's exactly how i'm thinking too now knowing the people and the crowds that he associated with i would assume he probably had to know something so uh, i I would say it's probably a good gamble to say he was at least probably involved with the masons or something of that sort so in that society prudence discretion Conformity, moderation, except in acquisition, decorum, frugality, became the marks of a sound man. Credit became more important than intrinsic personal qualities, and credit was based on the appearances of things, especially the appearances of the external material accessories of life. The facts of a man's personal qualities, such as kindness, affection, thoughtfulness, generosity, personal insight, and such were increasingly irrelevant or even adverse to the middle-class evaluation of a man. Man, this sounds like it's talking about 80s yuppies, doesn't it? Instead, the middle-class evaluation rested rather on non-personal attributes and on personal, excuse me, and on external accessories. Where personal qualities were admired, they were those that contributed to acquisition, often qualities opposed to the established values of the Christian outlook, such as love, charity, generosity, gentleness, or unselfishness. These middle-class qualities included decisiveness, selfishness, impersonality, ruthless energy, and insatiable ambition. Well, again, this sounds to me like the corporate dipshit kind of person. Well, it's making the point that, that we addressed earlier, right? So to be involved in commerce as this started to happen, Uh, the spiritual concerns and the real value of a living man or woman are diminished to nothing and the ruthless, dark, or demonic-type qualities uh, that no one would openly admit are admirable are the things that became admirable. So that's basically what, you know, we just, we just, Wayne and I just asked the question, can you even conduct commerce as we see it now and be a highly spiritual place? This shows why you can't. I would point out things like this were done with intent as they killed the things that we should have been admiring, they culminated in, hey, man, let's cover one's spirit this year. And by the way, we'll just suggest they do it, and they'll do it because we suggested it. Right, and this is the fruition of this hyper-materialist worldview, and that's exactly what they've shifted us to, this hyper-materialist view, and that's kind of where we've been steered. And as Jason said, this sounds like the 80s. Well, yeah, because the 80s, was that was the big decade when they really brought on Uh, the hyper-materialist quality of things into, like, true mainstream. Uh, It's kind of, it's been creeping up uh, since, you know, the the times that Dr. Quigley was talking about here. But it really rolled out full 
steam ahead in the 1980s with the rise of like uh, you know the yuppie type uh, business class and like, like all of it, it to excess that's the thing the 80s was the decade of excess in all of this uh, stuff and all of these hyper materialist ambitions so that's exactly what this is alluding to this was the the driving force that drove it to there and now we're seeing the fallout from that they're pointing it out all over the place. Uh, 85, they do Back to the Future. Without the 80s, there is no 9-11. The 1980s is the decade that made all the things we dislike right now possible. Uh, look at what's what's a big movie right now in, in the world. WW84. Is anyone missing the point there? World War 1984? They're going to tell you it means Wonder Woman, but people who have been alive long enough know better what WW has stood for since... A long time ago since our grandparents were alive um, they're echoing back and they keep paying homage uh, to where it happened you'll see it in 80, 1984 used a lot and of course we have the book 1984 which pre-echoes the kind of dystopian place it feels like they're trying to push us to point is is i was of age in the 1980s and it's obvious on the face of it the 1980s made everything we don't like about the world possible. That was the switch over. Um, and, and even morality as well, by the way, that's when the VHS and the Betamax war came on. As soon as VHS won out, porn mainstreamed and Disney had a direct hand in mainstreaming porn. They actually launched a whole thing called Buena Vista so they could get their hands on porn and push it out and start to mainline it and normalize it, separating it from Disney. Back in the 80s, no one knew Buena Vista was Disney. Um, everything, the, the materialism, the way corporation works, the importance of money, the things that are admirable from a business standpoint, and then there's the whole spiritual side of it. The 80s is the break point. Right. It was the division, I think, in uh, the, the, the time where things were simpler. Uh, I, I would say that was the division point for the technocracy, so to say. This is where they mainlined the, the technological advances and really push this hyper-materialist uh, viewpoint and vantage point to the people. And, you know, they pre-echoed this. I mean, guys like Orwell writing 1984. There's a reason that there he chose that decade as the marker. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the thing. So, I mean, you, you look at the 80s. It was probably the most important decade of our lifetime, uh, looking say. back at it. I so. And, you know, having grown up largely in the 80s, I was a child through the 80s and going into my early teens at the end of the 80s. Um, it was a different world back then. And this is really where things started to shift. And things that were thought of as being morally repugnant back then are mainstream now. Uh, so you could see how it's kind of been used as the launch point for what I would call the technocracy, which is the well, next step into this hyper-materialist there's, there's a thumbprint there, Wayne. What else did we get in the 80s? We got Apple Computer. And by the way, someone took a bite out of that apple, just like the Garden of Eden. Go let's, figure. Let, let's break that down, Crow, because that, that's very important. I was going to bring that up, and I'm glad you did. Intel gave them a whole bunch of money when they were just a couple kids in the garage. Why would they do that? Why would they give them a, a large chunk of change to start bringing about the concept of the personal computer? Intel was in with IBM and all those other big companies. They knew what they were doing. That brought about they, the whole technological yeah, they revolution. Have monopoly. Right. They had to they had to hedge the monopoly. Well, there's more than that. At one point you're told Apple's about to go bankrupt. Um, that's the narrative that we're told and Microsoft comes in and buys 40% of the com company or something like that. 
Um, I forget the exact story, but at some point, um, PC chips actually start going into the Apple products. Uh, there's no separating the one was from the, the other. But going it, in. Yeah, that's a story we should tell because there's an absolute parallel line between Apple Corporation of the Beatles and Apple Computer, and that was proven out. Uh, I realized there was something burning in the kitchen when they would, the Beatles wouldn't allow their music on iTunes, and there was a big lawsuit and a fight over the name Apple. And the way that played out demonstrated in spades, even to the point where other people picked up on it and started saying John Lennon was Steve Jobs and all kinds of other crazy-ass ideas. Um, but the point is, is there's an absolute line straight to the Beatles from Apple. But, I mean, who's going to deny? We, we got these personal computers in the 80s. Uh, one of the big ones was Apple. And there's a bite out of the apple. Why is there a bite out of the apple? Who knew to put a logo with a bite out of it in the 80s when hmm. nobody knew jack about computers? Who would do that? And by the way, if you were a kid, would you really name a company Macintosh? What, what's a kid care about an apple? Wouldn't he, wouldn't he call it like Darth Vader soup or something? <laughs> That's what a kid would name a company. Just saying. That's funny. Yeah, not only that, we also got uh, the very first uh, wireless telephones and cordless phones and stuff right. in the 1980s, too. You can see how the uh, the rollout of the, the technological end of it, as far as the, the ideas of the technologies that deal with the air, uh, started rolling out in earnest in the 1980s. So, exactly. I, I mean, yeah, the cell phone, uh, you know, these, these computer networks and things of that nature. Uh, you know the the satellite television quote unquote satellite television all of that stuff cable television all of that stuff all all these things over the airwaves uh started coming out and online in a big way in the 1980s uh it was a very uh specifically thought out decade for the rollout of this stuff and i i would say it was definitely pre-planned so uh, when you're talking about things like back to the future and referring to 1985 being the, the midpoint the mid marker of you know the the decade um these things are all encoded for a purpose like that and that that's why that movie back to the future has stood the test of time because there's a lot of things encoded in that movie and it's a very important movie uh for those people who plan different things in this world. I'll, they put it there I'll, for a reason. I'll tell you how important it was. How many people are aware that when they first started shooting Back to the Future, um, Michael J. Fox was not the star. It's that red-headed... Eric Stoltz. You know the red... Eric Stoltz. Um, and I've actually seen some of the footage, and it looks wrong. It looks contrived. It looks made after the fact or something. There's something about it... That is just so wrong. Um, but they they actually had a bunch of that film filmed and someone supposedly said, oh, this isn't working. Let's just go back and film the whole movie after they tell you this tale about how hard it was and how many years or decades it took to get the funding and everything had to be perfect and all this trouble just to get the film made. Well, they filmed a good portion of it and then said, oh, we're going to throw all this out because this dude's not working and we're going to refilm it all with Michael J. Fox. Um, the whole that that movie is is keystone um, in what was projected out from that time. And the, there's one scene there with Doc Martin where he actually stares into the camera, breaks the fourth wall um, and says, we're going back to the future. Um, I can't remember what scene it is, but there's nothing about that movie that isn't pre echoing up to the 9-11 idea. It's almost like at that point. 
um, everything hinged on 9-11. If they could pull off 9-11, they were pretty sure they could make the, the full run. Um, and this is echoed back in the 70s. And that remember the Mary Tyler Moore clip, uh, the Paul McCartney song with a little luck, um, mm. where David Letterman, the first Batman, Michael Keaton, mm-hmm. um, they're all dancing around in jer- jerseys. Well, Mary Tyler Moore, who, by the way, had her own television network for a while, MTM had a cat meow instead of a lion. So there's your connection. Um, she's singing with a little luck. We can make this whole damn thing work out. Can't you hear the town exploding? They're doing it in New York City, by the way. And as the people dance out, uh, the jerseys are lined up to say 9-11. And she sweeps by with her arm right in front of the 9-11 jerseys. And that's when I began to realize that at that point, they weren't 100% sure. It's like the George Bush speech. Um, We've got this real shot. We could, you know, this could work. We're, We're getting close. It wasn't a done deal, and it feels to me like all that was queuing to 9-11. And when they pulled that, uh, they got awful brave, awful quick. I'll tell you, I've watched the clips with uh, Eric Stoltz, and I wonder if they switched it because I, I watched all the scenes that are available, and they didn't shoot anywhere near like the entirety of the film. But the ones that uh, it they feels did... contrived, right? Well, it just feels wrong. I, I have an alternative theory to what you're saying they were flat like the guy's a great um dramatic kind of actor jason it looks like someone spray painted his head i mean it doesn't look movie quality to me what are you talking about the the scenes that were released yeah well the the ones that you that i don't know if you still can that we used to be able to see of eric stoltz and some of the ones that marty that, that michael j fox redid even his hair color it looks cheap and half-assed almost like they put it together after the fact or something well no, what you're seeing is those those are the um, – I forget the actual name for it, but the, it, that never looks right. That's not the finished film. That's why it looks that way. But what I think might have been the thing is we know that movie is absolutely riddled with stuff, left, right, up, down, all over the place. We know this. I think if Eric Stoltz just wasn't pulling it off and they needed this to be the blockbuster that it turned into, that could be why they replaced him. They're like, this isn't working. We need this to be over-the-top good. And there was just something about Michael J. Fox in that well, my charisma. Gosh. Go, you want my hunch? Without looking, this is my hunch. Go look up when Eric Stoltz was born and everything you can know about him, then do the same with Michael J. Fox. And you can already put together that Fox is triple sixes and all the other nonsense that's going to go with it. Um, but there's no way you're going to convince me that the entirety of what we're being shown wasn't contrived. Um, it's completely pointing to the biggest episode. Um, at that point, it appears that they're saying, we're close, we could pull this off. If we pull this off, then damn, we're going to be kings of the mountain. Uh, but they weren't 100% sure that it was going to happen. That's the way I read it. Um, and I would be more than happy to see someone go pull apart Stoltz's numbers and all the, you know, when was the shoot date and all that and see, is this contrived too? Yeah. Or does it feel like it is, you know, the narrative they're handing us? And I don't possibly understand how it could be because the only reason that film was made was to pre-echo this magical date in time called September 11, 2001. Well, that's why I think they, they had to get somebody who they knew it was going to be a blockbuster for. If you had this good dramatic actor and he was just falling flat and it just wasn't it, it wasn't grabbing the way they wanted it to grab and they knew what they wanted to do with this film, I could easily see them wanting to replace somebody. Like, no, this isn't working. We need this to be what it, what it turned into, which was a, a huge, huge hit. All right, and allegedly Michael J. Fox filmed 
uh, all of the scenes and stuff uh, for that movie after actually filming for the sitcom he was on, Family, Family Ties. Ties. Yeah, he did. At right. the time. He did. Uh, yeah. So I, I think there's definitely a crossover between Family Ties and Back to the Future. I'm sure there's some kind of hidden meaning uh, between well, those two. Uh, he's a but, teen Republican, right? That's who he is yeah. in Family mm-hmm. Ties. Yep. Mm-hmm. He's the black sheep of the family. The whole family is easygoing, ex-hippies, live-and-let-live people, and he's the exact opposite. He's a business tycoon you know he's the he's the new 80s screw him this is business right. if the he dies too bad he's right. the embodiment of this idea that we yep. were just talking about here in quigley's right. book so that that's another important tie right there that binds so uh, his, does anyone know his name and family ties i have no idea at this point michael something alex alex p keaton is that what it was yep alex keaton alex keaton yeah Alex P. Keaton. He always used the P, the middle initial. Yeah, so I'm sure exactly. there's significance to that. <laughs> so funny. Doesn't that so. just mean that he's going to be assassinated at some point? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he didn't use his full middle name. Then we'd know he's in trouble. <laughs> all right. As the middle classes and their commercialization of all human relationships sped, bleh, relationships spread through Western society in the centuries from the 12th to the 20th, they largely modified and, to some extent, reversed the values of Western society earlier. In some cases, the old values, such as future preference or self-discipline, remained but were redirected. Future preference ceased to be transcendental in its aim and became secularized. Self-discipline ceased to seek spirituality by restraining sensuality and instead sought material acquisition. In general, the new middle-class outlook had a considerable religious basis, but it was the religion of the medieval heresies and of Puritanism rather than the religion of Roman Christianity. You want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, Wayne? (laughs) Yeah, I had my mute button on, so I was just going to say something, but uh, I was still muted. Uh, Actually, yeah, you could kind of see where this is going here. It's talking about the total inversion of these religious ideas and what what they they meant and what they stood for at one time. And this plays right along into this whole idea of inversion, inverting the natural order, inverting all things that matter in this world, inverting nature, inverting these – uh, religious ideas and the sanctity of life and the, the sanctity of spirituality, these ideas. Uh, so you're talking about – they turned it on its head here. That's yeah. what the middle class was designed to do. You know, Wayne, you could almost sum it up on another 80, 80s movie, um, Wall Street. Was that the name of it with Gordon Gecko? So for the entirety of history, there was one spiritual and moral set. One of the seven deadly sins in these ideas was greed. Uh, Gordon Gecko showed up in the 80s and he told us all greed is good, right? Um, and then there's follow-ups to that. So it, it all, everything we can show about the 80s is showing the inversion of morality, um, the final nail in the, in the family coffin, which was kicked off probably sometime in the 50s. But what I'm aware of in the 60s, um, that, that movie really sums up exactly what you just said. Gordon Gecko basically showing up and saying, we're all engaged in business and making money. And by the way, greed is good now. <laughs> they wouldn't put this stuff in the entertainment, would they, Crow? What? No, I don't think Wait, so. What? Not on purpose. It was an accident. No, it's got to be a coincidence, I'm sure. Much like maybe everything else that They happens. forgot to swap actors maybe for that one. <laughs> This complex outlook that we call middle class or bourgeois is, of course, the chief basis of our world today. Bingo! There we are. 
Western society is the richest and most powerful society that has ever existed, largely because it has been impelled forward along these lines, beyond the rational degree necessary to satisfy human needs, by the irrational drive for achievement in terms of material ambitions. To be sure, Western society always had other kinds of people, and the majority of the people in Western society probably had other outlooks and values, but it was middle-class urgency that pushed modern developments in the direction they took. There were always in our society dreamers and truth-seekers truth and tinkerers. They, as poets, scientists, and engineers, thought up innovations which the middle classes adopted and exploited if they seemed likely to be profit-producing. Middle class self-discipline and future preference provided the savings and investment without which any innovation, no matter how appealing in theory, would be set aside and neglected. But the innovations that could attract middle-class approval and exploitation were the ones that made our world today so different from the world of our grandparents and ancestors. By the way, the term I was think, trying to think of with the Eric Stoltz clips were called the dailies. Those were, those were the dailies. Those weren't the final prints. That's why they probably look so crappy compared to the, the finished 35-millimeter prints. I'm just saying it looks like a put-up to me, and if I took the time to take it all apart, I could probably demonstrate it in some way, but I'm just guessing right now. Oh, dude, there's always more to everything. We all know this. <laughs> Questions, comments, criticisms, or complaints, or shall I continue? Nah, Carry let's on. move along. Carry on, my wayward song. I like that song. This middle-class character was imposed most strongly on the United States. In order to identify it and to discuss a very complex pattern of outlooks and values, we shall try to summarize it. At its basis is psychic insecurity founded on lack of secure social status. The cure for such insecurity became insatiable material acquisition. Oh, hell yeah, did it. From this flowed a large number of attributes of which we shall list only five. Future preference, self-discipline, social conformity, infinitely expandable material demand, and a general emphasis on externalized impersonal values. Whew, yeah, they just nailed it, didn't they? Well, he. How many of the seven deadly sins did they cross? Or, you know, it's, it's like a, just a turnabout. It's almost like taking the poles and flipping positive to negative. Um, just consider one aspect of it, like the idea of banking in the 80s, where it doesn't matter whether you're a decent person or any of these things. Those are not going to be the things that decide whether you get your business loan or other things. Um, it's going to be based on your ruthless ability to do business, right? Um, and then fast forward up to wherever it was at the end of the, in the beginning of the 2000s, when they just started, anyone could belly up to the bar and get as many home loans as they want. I saw people get three and four. Um, for the entirety of my life, the bank would try to protect people to ensure that they could cover their loan and that it wasn't predatory in any way. And for some reason, right there at the beginning of the millennium, not only were they allowed to get more loans than they could possibly cover in the hope and dream they could get filthy rich by flipping four homes, um, they were predatory loans that no one understood. So after they made payments for a certain period of time, the payments ballooned. And that was all emphasized by the bank. So it goes to exactly what he's talking about here. Everything's inverted. Right. And I, I think it's important that we should point out that this book, I believe, was written in the 1960s. Uh, Dr. Quigley died in 1977, so he never even saw the decade of the 1980s. And he's talking about exactly that in this book. Creepy, isn't uh, it? Like it he is. knew what was coming. Like, yeah, like he knew what was coming or was involved in the planning of all of it or something, right? No, that would never happen. It's just another one of them coincidences, though, guys. 
We spent five years talking about it before it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Those who have this outlook are middle class. Those who lack it are something else. Thus, middle class status is a matter of outlook and not a matter of occupation or status. There can be middle class clergy or teachers or scientists. Indeed, in the United States, most of these three groups are middle class, although their theoretical devotion to truth rather than to profit or to others rather than to self might seem to imply that they should not be middle class. And indeed, they should not be, for the urge to seek truth or to help others are not really compatible with the middle class values. But in our culture, the latter have been so influential and pervasive, and the economic power of middle class leaders has been so great, that many people whose occupations, on the face of it, should make them other than middle class, nonetheless have adopted major parts of the middle class outlook and seek material success in religion or teaching or science. The middle class. You, notice, you, you could almost sum up some of this stuff just by basically the idea here is getting a society to be more self-centric individually, right? For all these things to go on. So it's like politics. <laughs> that, that's all based on self-centeredness, right? We're going to argue because what I want and my ideas are more important than yours and you need to believe what I believe. Um, it's almost the same thing going on here. And as he's pointing out, it's a state of mind, not really a, a status. Right. And he's also pointing out the importance of material success in religion or teaching or science. Notice those three uh, very important things he's pointing out. Religion, science, and teaching. And a lot of that uh, is the basis for steering uh, social norms in society. Uh, You're talking about these are three of the major uh, vehicles for social engineering, religion, teaching, and science. All right. The middle-class outlook, born in the Netherlands and northern Italy and other places in the medieval period, has been passed on by being inculcated to children as the proper attitude for them to emulate. Well, we don't need no education. I don't need no thought control. It could pass on from generation to generation and from century to century, as long as parents continued to believe it themselves and disciplined their children to accept it. The minority of children who did not accept it were disowned and fell out of the middle classes. What is even more important, they were until recently pitied and rejected by their families. In this way, those who accepted the outlook marched on in the steadily swelling ranks of the triumphant middle classes until the 20th century. He's (laughs) writing this right after the hippie movement, isn't he? Don't you think, Wayne? <laughs> it would seem smacks that way. Up to me, yeah. <laughs> they got kicked out or disowned. Um, you know, that was the hippie movement. All the men were in business suits and working and, you know, have, affording a car. The wife stayed home, took care of the family. <clears throat> Excuse me. And all of a sudden, the kid just started growing his hair, taking acid, and refused to work. <laughs> Sounds like it. For more than half a century, from before World War I, the middle-class outlook has been under relentless attack, often by its most ardent members, who heedlessly and unknowingly have undermined and destroyed many of the basic social customs that preserved it through earlier generations. And let me point out how all the ding-dong mask people are doing that to our society today, by the way, with your own self-policing bullshit. 
Many of these changes occurred from changes in child-rearing practices, and many arose from the very success of the middle-class way of life, which achieved material affluence that tended to weaken the older emphasis on self-discipline, saving, future preference, and the rest of it. One of the chief... Right, gotta, well, I'm, I'm going to take a, a two-minute or here, so you guys got to carry it. I'll be right back. All right. One of the chief changes fundamental to the survival of the middle-class outlook was a change in our society's basic conception of human nature. This had two parts to it. The traditional Christian attitude toward human personality was that human nature was essentially good and that it was formed and modified by social pressures and training. The goodness of human nature was based on the belief that it was a kind of weaker copy of God's nature, lacking many of God's qualities in degree rather than in kind, but nonetheless perfectible, and perfectible largely by its own efforts with God's guidance. The Christian view of the universe as a hierarchy of beings, with man about two-thirds of the way up, saw these beings, especially man, as fundamentally free creatures able to move at their own volition toward God or away from him, and guided or attracted in the correct direction for realization of their potentialities by God's presence at the top excuse me, at the top of the universe, a presence which, like the North Magnetic Pole, attracted men as compasses upward toward fuller realization and knowledge of God, who was the fulfillment of all good. Thus the effort came from free men, the guidance came from God's grace, and ultimately the motive power came from God's attractiveness. Yeah, and we'll see here the, the contrast to that in the upcoming paragraphs here. Um, you know, what he's talking about here. I, I like the uh, allegory he makes there about uh, the way that a compass points to the north, uh, the same thing. Um, you know, it's, it's God's qualities... Uh, with man two-thirds of the way up saw these beings, especially man, as fundamentally free creatures, able to move at their own volition toward God or away from him. So, I mean, we're given that um, that choice here. We could move towards godly things, or we could move away from that. And uh, I like that uh, allegory of uh, the magnetic uh, and the, the North Pole. Yeah. Uh, that's actually, it's, it's actually a pretty good uh, allegory there. Uh, so you could see, like, God's presence, which is like the magnetic North Pole, uh, attracts men. Or, you know, you could uh, use the inverse of that and go away from that to travel south. I mean, that, that, that's the kind of idea. So you could move towards more godly spiritual ideas or away from that. And largely what society has done is flip things on its head and we're moving south, so to say, uh, away from spiritual ideas and away from the center. So we are not centered anymore uh, the way we should be. Um, so if you want to continue on from there or if you had anything to add. Well, it's interesting that Quigley keeps bringing up the, the whole Christian notions of things, but is drastically differentiating Protestantism from Catholicism. And I, I don't know, man, uh, wouldn't you say both of them are pretty similar except for the fact that the Catholic Church held all the power? Well, see, that there is some differentiation between the two, and a lot of it is not necessarily—it's well, a lot of dogmatic ideas or, or dogma well, yeah, of and things of that nature. But uh, there's also a division in there 
uh, within the secret society groups, whereas Masons also consider themselves a quote-unquote Christian organization of sorts, um, <laughs> even though they claim, you know, they, they claim to believe in a god but won't say what god it is, and they, they do, uh, <laughs> a lot of them do swear on the Bible and, and things like that and use Christian accoutrements, so they claim to be, you know, a partially Christian organization. Um, so that that's one side of it. That would be your more Protestant side, and then there's the Jesuits who are a fully Catholic side of it. Right. So I mean, even even these things are, are divided along those kind of lines, and it's it's this whole power struggle that goes on, and this goes back to uh, the division again between uh, these different uh, secret society groups and these these different classes. This goes back to the ancient mystery schools, and I just. Uh, put out a video on my channel if people are interested in exploring this avenue of thought more. And it's uh, actually, I read from a book by a Mr. Max Heindel, um, a Rosicrucian book that was called uh, Freemasonry and Catholicism. And uh, in that it explores this division and how uh, the ultimate goal of this division right now is reunification into uh, what is called the Order of Melchizedek. Uh, which this is the combination of statecraft and priestcraft together into a one ruling office per se, and this is this is largely what the Vatican has sought to do uh, through the course of time. Here is is become uh, that uh, order of you know the priestly order of Melchizedek uh, within this world and have all controlling power, and this this goes off into more. Uh, philosophical and spiritual ideas, things such as uh, the division between masculinity, femininity, the ideas of fire and water being combined together, uh, like these more alchemical and philosophical ideas. Uh, I would recommend people go listen to that video on my YouTube channel, that's Alchemical Tech Revolution, um, and kind of get an idea as to what people at the topmost levels of many of these secret societies and at these control structures, the things they believe and the things that they're working towards and, and why it would seem there's this kind of dichotomy there uh, with the division between like the, the Christian uh, type organizations and, and different denominations there. And that, I think, is largely what uh, Quigley's alluding to here. Is, is there a tinge of the kind of segmentation of society like why is it that science and and spiritual concerns cannot go together because in every other period that we're aware of they did right it's it's that kind of connotation these things have been uh divided on purpose right. um you know for the purposes of promoting either statecraft or priestcraft one over the other but yet they simultaneously although they're divided they work together towards the same goals and it's an interesting dichotomy it really truly is but this this falls back at the heart of these different alchemical ideas and goes directly back to the elemental ideas the, the combination of the uh, philosophical elemental fire with the philosophical elemental water now the philosophical fire this is represented by statecraft okay by government okay this is the masculine principle. And the priestcraft, or the spiritual idea, is represented by water, the more feminine aspect. That You combine these two together, what do you get when you combine fire and water? You get steam, which is elemental air. And that's the age we're going into now, uh, the age of air, age of Aquarius. So you can see how all of these different uh, alchemical ideas are encoded in everything, even into these very power structures and, and things like that that are alluded to here. And you can't separate um, 
Christian theology from the running and the foundation of this country. It's intrinsically there. It's the basis on which, right? It's in the basis on which our laws and stuff are made. Uh, so people who you know find distaste with the Bible or something, or have been have bad had bad experiences with people that call themselves Christians but don't really act like it, <laughs> and have thrown away this whole idea of the things that are, are wrapped up in the Bible, they're, they're really missing the boat. And I, I would really suggest, take a look at it with new eyes, and, and you'll see, you'll begin to see more spiritual aspects of things going on. So, but I think that's largely what's been alluded to here, uh, what he's talking about um, in that last paragraph there, Jason, like you had said. It's almost like you could sum up, and it's strange that he hasn't used the word. It's the idea that we've covered so often, segmentation, right? Um, everything is, is divide and conquer. Like the idea of a football team, that's divide and conquer. The idea of a political party is divide and conquer. Even a country or a flag, um, it's us and them. And it goes on and on. But we see whole spiritual traditions that were segmented down, and we can demonstrate it, like for we are, it was mostly segmented off to the idea of Jupiter, other places to Saturn, other places to Venus. And so the allegory here would be when the sun shines light on the world, we all know that it's white light that we see, but we can break it apart to seven different colors. There was a time when that corresponded to the sky clock. So how is it that we were so easily convinced, you live here, this is the color out of those seven that you guys will work with. And these guys over here are going to work with it. It's just complete segmentation. And so it's almost like the entirety of what is laid down here is a form of segmentation. And right. then so the whole mental aspect, which is basically, as far as I can tell, it's, it's like self-centeredness. I mean, when you start to give up, basically when you're being polite or you're constraining yourself from doing things, you're you're making a decision for the good of some other thing over what you would like personally, right? And that's what's been flipped here. Right. It's compartmentalization, and this is how all these power structures and stuff work. They divide things into this compartmentalized type of a system. Uh, it works the same with secret societies, intelligence agencies, all of it. It's all compartmentalization, and one of the key factors to making compartmentalization work is the tool known as secrecy. This is why they're, quote-unquote, secret societies. This is why they hold secrets. This is why, uh, you know, there's this uh, thing in government called need to know. Uh, you have to have this classification to know this information, and if you don't have need to know, you can't get it. That's why compartmentalization is a thing. It's a control structure. Secrecy, one of the biggest mind control weapons ever devised. Secrecy, holding a secret as power over somebody else. Uh, there's a whole blackmail economy that goes on within governments and different uh, large groups throughout the world. Uh, I guess that's why the truth sets you free, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, when you look at this stuff uh, from a spiritual or philosophical level, these are the very core ideas of what we're talking about here. These, these are This is what's involved with all of this stuff. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about things like politics or the way that... Uh, you know, our middle class here in America has been socially engineered for destruction and total inversion of the natural order. Um, and that's why we could see how we got to where we are today. This is exactly what's been going on. All right. Looks like we're getting close to that time, boys, but let's keep going through here. In this view, the devil, 
Lucifer was the epitome of positive wickedness, was one of the highest of the angels close to God, who fell because he failed to keep his perspective and believed that he was as good as God. In this Christian outlook, the chief task was to train men so that they would use their intrinsic freedom to do the right thing by following God's guidance. Opposed to this Western view of the world and the nature of man, there was, from the beginning, another opposed view of both which received its most explicit formulation by the, Persians, <clears throat> by the Persian Zoroaster in the 7th century BC and came into the Western tradition as a minor heretical theme. It came in through the Persian influence on the Hebrews, especially during the Babylonian captivity of the Jews in the 6th century BC, and it came in more fully through the Greek rationalist tradition from Pythagoras to Plato. This latter tradition encircled the early Christian religion, giving rise to many of the controversies that were settled in the early church councils and continuing on in the many heresies that extended through history from the Arians, the Manichaeans, Luther, Calvin, and the Jansenists. Yeah, it's it's you know it's it, what's ironic about this is you you start to see the same idea echoed and echoed and echoed. The early Vatican, uh, they were in love with Plato, and they were also in love with Hermes Trismegistus. They just didn't admit it in public. They were also in love with the Kabbalah, and they had Jewish teachers there under the guise that they needed those people to help them better understand the Old Testament in its original languages. These were the ideas, but what was going on is these earlier people were close to nature. So if you go back to the previous two paragraphs you read, talking about following God's guidance, it's almost another way you could say that, is nature is a perfect example. So as a human being, you don't make the decision if you know what time it is, because you don't know what time it is. Nature knows what time it is. It's almost like that. Right, it's, it's the, the switch to artificiality. Right. From from the natural world, the total inversion, once again, to the totally artificial. And these are the first steps into the whole technocracy idea that we're going into and the whole transhumanist philosophy, this whole thing. Uh, so you, you can see how these little small steps through time and these different, uh, different uh, concepts through the ages and on forward into today, how we're taking those steps very slowly and methodically, but uh, they've been speeding up now the past couple of years, and that's by design. Carry that for a second. Okay. <laughs> I have <laughs> to tell somebody anyway, something. Anyway, but uh, we see here uh, we're talking about... Uh, the ideas of, uh, you know, how the Babylonian captivity of the Jews brought them the uh, Greek rationalist ideas from Pythagoras and Plato and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and how he's trying to, to show here uh, this dichotomy of thought between the early Christians and uh, these different ideas, these Greek rationalist ideas. But uh, in actuality, these things don't really contradict one another all that much when it comes I, I, down to it. I can give an interesting point on that because I was reading some alchemical stuff where exactly the same thing they're talking about is two points of view. One was, I think, realism, the other idealism, <clears throat> and they're at odds with each other. Um, when you describe out what one means, it comes to an op opposing conclusion. In other words, it exists before the outcome, and when you break down the other one, the same is true. So even from a timeline, they oppose each other, but what the alchemists did is realize that both of them were true. And right. so 
they could achieve within that. And we're kind of, I mean, he's about to jump in here. We're going to see the Orthodox and Puritan view of <laughs> what exactly is evil. You know, it's the same idea. And we get hung up on, you know, we got to have this definition. Why? Everybody knows what evil is, right? And, and that's the whole thing. Like I said, they, these ideas don't really contradict one another the way that they try to portray them as. See, that's the th it's just a different viewpoint of it. And, and and that's that's the whole thing. You could look at it, uh, like you said, from one point in the timeline to the other, and they they look like they're they're opposites, but they they both lead to the same center or the same central idea. And but they make you, leaps too, Wayne. I mean, we're about yeah. to get into two ideas. One is man is basically good, and the other is man is basically evil. Well, right. really. Did you guys go out and poll all of mankind? And by the way, were the women included? And then average your outcome. <laughs> and if it was eighty percent true, then you could make that statement. Or is this just a point of view? This is right. the whole problem. See, that's the thing. It is. It's just a point of view. I mean, that's you could. What it is. You could. You could prove either of those ideas that man is intrinsically good or man is intrinsically evil. If, they did. If you really they set out to do so. They did. Yeah. The Orthodox proved it one way and the Puritan proved it another way with clever language. And that, that goes back to the whole idea of Plato, which he was literally about like a god to the people forming the early Vatican as they went into the Renaissance. They just hid all their kind of what they would call pagan ideas um, and repackaged it out to what they were supposed to be doing. Um, but the, the funny thing is, is you got Socrates. And if those two things are almost really at odds, Socrates and Plato. Um, but the point is, is would you throw one out <laughs> to spite the other? You wouldn't, right, would you? You want no, them both. And, right, they're both valid points of view, and, and that's the whole thing. And that's why people get hung up on these religious ideas and are like, no, that's that's false. You know, this is the only way and this and that. Well, you, you have to look at it from all different angles. You know what I'm saying? It's like you can't throw out good ideas. Just find the value that you find in it. You know what I'm saying? Everything has an intrinsic value. All these different belief systems, all these different philosophies, all these different religious ideals, they all have a core central truth to them um, that, you know, is runs between all of them. And at the same token, you're going to find things that you don't like or agree with in every single one, and you're going to find good points and things that you find to be true in every single one. Hold on to what the value is and, and discard the rest if it doesn't suit you. But don't be afraid to read it or look at it because you never know uh, what you're going to find. Because like I said, these things don't really intrinsically contradict one another. It's just looking at it from a different angle. It's so. almost like arguing whether a magnet's positive or negative. You know? <laughs> Precisely, yeah. But which way are you holding it there, pal? <laughs> yeah, and then if you break it in half, you, you still have two positives and two negatives then. You know what I'm saying? Both pieces still have the positive and negative side. It, it, it's it, it's just one of those things. It's, it's, it depends it, what angle you're looking at it from. You know what we don't have is things as they actually are. You know, that's what science is supposed to be, right? We're supposed to prove a thing out right now. <laughs> supposed to go, be. <laughs> well, you can grab a thousand books that will tell you gravity is gravity, and yet it's just a theory based on a theory. My point being <laughs> is whatever happened, like in the alchemical days, they had truths, but they you couldn't put them down like science would put them down. They knew damn well it, what, it is what it is. Nature proved this is what it is. We worked it out. We did it. Here's the outcome. It is what it is. And that's really what's absent from modern living. Nothing is what it is anymore. Right. They try to make everything measurable. 
And that's the problem. Not everything's measurable. There's a lot of things that are subjective or experiential. And you can't really accurately measure those in an objective type way like they try to use science for. And that's not the only lens that you can view the world through is through this world of objective measurement. And that's what science is. And it has its place. Don't get me wrong. If you were to do actual real science, but then there's many more things that are purely subjective or experiential and you can't accurately measure those. There's no way to prove those things through scientific method. So <laughs> is, is the yardstick antithetical to nature? You know <laughs> what I'm saying here? Uh, because I, I would argue all day that the, uh, the system we have has a little vestige of nature left in it. Um, but when you get over to metric, man, that is some cold calculated surgical <laughs> it, there. It doesn't correspond to nature. It just doesn't. And, uh, it's like everything else we've been talking about here at some point. What, what is the old Latin term mala and say it's bad on the, or, or prima facie or something bad on the face of it. I forget which one it is, but it's like not arguable. It's like if you find a child that's old enough to talk and you ask them, is killing wrong, they don't have to be taught. They already know. You see what I'm going at here? doesn't need a definition. Right. Right. That's, that's the thing. I mean, there are many things in this world that are strictly subjective or experiential, and you cannot measure those. So, therefore, you can't really call that science per se, but you also can't just discard it because it doesn't, it's not objectively provable through measurement. <laughs> that's the thing. The only things you could prove scientifically are those that are only objectively provable through measurement of some sort. That's it. Well, you know, uh, you other could, things you can't really prove through science. You could almost extrapolate that out since we know they can predict future events if they have a big enough data set uh, through data mining. You could almost make the argument that the event that they just accurately predicted is synthetic, that the the actual thing they have ding, predicted ding, ding, is ding, synthetic, ding. and so winner, that winner, tells, chicken dinner. So there, there is the proof that you you're not with nature anymore, and there is the proof that you have no spiritual component or godliness or righteousness. It's at that all point. artificially manufactured at that point, and that's the problem. And that's measured, the produced, delivered, impelled, living. all of it. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get through this last bit here before we say good night. The chief avenue by which these ideas, which were constantly rejected by the endless discussions formulating the doctrine of the West, continued to survive was through the influence of St. Augustine. From this dissident minority point of view came 17th century Puritanism. The general distinction of this point of view, from Zoroaster to William Golding in Lord of the Flies, is that the world and the flesh are positive evils, and that man, in at least this physical part of his nature, is essentially evil. As a consequence, he must be disciplined totally to prevent him from destroying himself and the world. In this view, the devil is a force or being of positive malevolence, and, by, and man by himself is incapable of any good and is, accordingly, not free. He can be saved in eternity by God's grace alone, and he can get through this temporal world only by being subjected to a regime of total despotism. The direction and nature of the despotism is not regarded as important, since the really important thing is that man's innate destructiveness be controlled. Nothing could be more sharply contrasted than these two points of view, the orthodox and the puritanical. Well, I was, I was just going to say this is so much poppycock because it ignores probably a very massive history we don't know that much about that gave us the natural sciences. The idea is, yeah, you're in the material world. That's fallen.
It's like the difference between a bag of mud and the air. Um, one of these things is lofty, the other one not so much. And by the way, it's stuck to the ground. And by the way, it's dirty. So the 3D material reality in was viewed as almost a crucible. Um, yeah, man, you're going to be tempted to do things. But the point is, is a human being is special and it can overcome these things. And in doing so, which is why the cathedrals were there, there's a path a human being could get on to go higher and higher and then finally escape the grasp of what these guys are accusing us all of being stuck in. In other words, what they're saying is you're this and there's no way out unless, you know, religion or something. But that's really, it ignores a whole massive part of history that we're aware of, doesn't it, Wayne? I would say so, because I, I, that's the whole thing. I mean, our history is a lie agreed upon. None of us really truly knows what happened uh, before our lifetimes. True uh, enough. That's a fact. That's a fact, Jack. So, I, I mm -hmm. mean, you, you could maybe talk to some, like, your grandparents or something. I could maybe know a couple things from stories my grandparents told me about what those times were like. But that's not to know the entire reality of how it was. And, you know, vice versa. They could know things from their generations of grandparents and that kind of thing. But uh, how much of that translates forward, who knows? So there's a whole lot of our history that's missing from this. But... What I read in this, what he's talking about here, what Dr. Quigley's talking about, is this distinction, how we've fallen from these more lofty spiritual ideas into this materialist ideas, and how uh, we've gone from the point of view that we used to have back in the old good days, point. that man was basically good, to now man is basically evil. So that being the case, the people in charge, believing man is basically evil, uh, we need to be forced into submission uh, for our own good. That's the see. That's what he's talking about right here. Uh, when so, you actually so read the method this. of measurement destroyed the the, the measurement. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, uh, like he's talking about. Uh, as a consequence, he must be disciplined totally to prevent him from destroying himself and the world. This is the vantage point, the viewpoint of the ruling class today. That's why they act the way they do. See. Uh, that that's exactly what this is talking about. This is why they want you to walk around, put this diaper on your face, don't no. get within six feet of people, be good, stay home, don't go anywhere, don't do anything. Stay sit home, down save lives. And wait, yeah, stay home, sit and watch your computer monitor and await in further instructions from us <laughs> so that you don't destroy the world, you nana killers. I think most dead bodies are at least six feet away from everyone, right? Yeah, yeah you would think so. I tripped on three but, of them just today myself. All right. Well, we're over time. You better burn through the Orthodox and Puritan views at least. Yeah, let's do that. So the Orthodox point of view, according to Dr. Carol Quigley, evil is absence of good. Man is basically good. Man is free. Man can contribute to his salvation by good works. Self-discipline is necessary to guide or direct. Truth is found from experience and revelation interpreted by tradition. And the Puritan point of views. Evil is positive entity. Man is basically evil. Man is a slave of his nature. Man can be saved only by God. Discipline must be external and total. Truth is found by rational deduction from revelation. Those are definitely quite opposing viewpoints on a lot of things. I mean, the, the only well, really common thing between them is the fact that they're both looking towards the concept of God. Well, what's ironic is that it's part of the Puritan view ignores the, 
the supposed example of the New Testament Testament surface narrative, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does, and that's the thing that's kind of antithetical about it all. Yep. But, uh, at the same point, this is the viewpoint of the people in charge. They're, they're looking at this world from the Puritan viewpoint. Man's evil. He's a slave of his nature. Um, evil is a positive entity. See that? They're putting that positive in there, mm. the positive attribution to it. Uh, man can be saved only by God or by becoming God. That would be probably more accurately their viewpoint. Um, discipline must be external and total. That's why the draconian lockdowns. That's why these this whole draconian idea of running society. <laughs> that's that's why the control grid, guys. That's that's why the technocracy. That that's why they want to set up the AI control grid uh, and have everything wired to it. That's why the Internet of Things, the Internet of Bodies, uh, which we discussed here too. Um, and it says truth is found by rational deduction from revelation. So rational deduction, they're talking about science or, or what they would call scientism when they're saying truth is found by rational deduction from revelation. This is scientism. That's what they're talking about there. It's, um, it's almost like the, the entirety of, of the last half of this been about description. It reminds me of the book of John, right? John 1 is, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Maybe they could have added a little more that said, so be careful how you use the Word to describe things, you know? Because... <laughs> <laughs> Basically, what they're saying is, I'm going to give you a scale so you can weigh everything, but when you get done weighing everything, you'll have ruined the fact that you weighed it because you used the scale. <laughs> well, that, that kind of ties into these uh, quote-unquote quantum ideas, though, too, right? Because you, you can measure the particle, but in so doing, you can't know where it's located then, right? <laughs> or vice versa. You can know where it's at, but you don't know what it is. In other words, it's poppycock because you don't know anything, and things have to be knowable at some level. Either right. uh, the only option is is that you're not smart enough or grown up enough to know a thing. That's really the only way out here. Um, right. But what we see is the way things are described have a definite influence, an overwhelming influence on the way things go. Take the idea of space. Right now, you know, I always scan the TV listings because they reflect what's going on in our world. They're doing the whole year in space thing again. And it's <laughs> like, really, you're still pushing that poppycock around. But the point is, hmm. is they're using words to describe a thing that is provably not true. And the people who don't understand that it's not true have their whole thought process influenced by a description, basically, if you think about it. Or, wait for it, the word, the logos, the misuse of the word. Absolutely. And that's what it all boils down to in the end. Um, you know, the, the use or misuse of our words and our, our ideas, our intention. Intention is everything. I mean, I think we've said that before. Intent is everything. Do you want to live as a free man or do you want to be a slave to your nature? And that's what these two uh, opposing viewpoints are. And we could choose. See, that's the thing. As individuals, we're, we're given free choice. That's a gift of God. We've been given uh, the gift of free will. So we could choose. Do we want to be free? Do we want to be basically good? Or do we accept that, you know, oh, we're just bad. You know, it's it's <laughs> the devil made me do it. Uh, yeah. that, that's just human nature. That kind of thing. Um, do you want to accept that and, and think in those terms? Self-fulfilling prophecy. To, right. right. Or do you want to think on more lofty spiritual ideas and, and try to be a good person and do good things and and, uh, you know, have some intrinsic value to others in this place. 
because that's basically what it comes down to. In the end, uh, when you leave this world behind, the only thing people are going to remember about you is uh, how you made them feel, pretty much. Um, and, if you, know, you get to leave this world behind. <laughs> right. Mm. But if and you that's learn the tomorrow, you got to come do it another thousand times till you can graduate. Right. So, you know, do you want to leave behind a good legacy or do you want to just be, you know, a total screw up and, <laughs> you know, chase after whatever material things that are here <laughs> now that you want to go after? And, you know, uh, the he who has the most toys in the end wins. Uh, it doesn't really work that way, guys. <laughs> Welcome to the afterlife. Take a shower. You're getting ready to go back. By the way, how important was that Mercedes now? Mm. Yeah, man. So it's you could see the, the antithetical views uh, going on here from those people in charge. And I think this is largely why uh, they fear death so much. Uh, that That's the thing. At the end of the day, these people who are at the topmost levels of these power structures, they're afraid of death. That's why they seek this immortality through, you know, the transhumanism and, and various other methods. They know what kind they, of shitheads they, they've been. Right. Absolutely they do. Because you can't tell me that you could be like that and act in that way and, and be so manipulative of people and, and use people the way they have and still have a clear conscience. And that, that's the thing. I mean, they know. They know how bad they are. And they're afraid that just maybe they might have to face up to a, the judgment of a higher power after all this. And they absolutely don't want to do that. They would rather stay here because, you see, they the way they see it is they have some modicum of control here. Well, that's the Luciferian the concept, isn't it? Because then they're, they're the highest power if everything is under their system. They don't have to answer the, to the true highest power. Or so right. they think. So they think. And it's a flawed thought process in my view. All right. I think that's a pretty good place to leave it, guys. Anybody want to give any final thoughts? And Crow, you and I should probably talk a little bit about the show we're about to release. Yeah, go ahead, Wayne. No, I just want to make sure everybody has a uh, a good new year ahead. Remember, intent is everything. So have the intention of making the world a better place. Be the change you want to see in the world. And that goes a long way. So, you know, we could have uh, a better uh, year of the blackjack coming up. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. Or we could make it so it's not blackjack. Right, right. That's the whole point. I mean, we, we could still turn things around by just, you know, staying a positive intention and uh, changing the, the small portion of our world that's around us for the better. See, be the change you want to see in the world. Set, set the example. Because when people see you setting the example, then that motivates other people to do the same kind of things so hopefully we get enough of that going get enough good intent going we could have a better uh, next year ahead better than the uh, hindsight that is 2020 now That's yep the yep thing, man all right crow let's uh let's talk about this for a moment and then we'll uh we'll say good night and happy new year to everybody now what time is it now it's about 11 after 11 so somewhere in the next i don't know 40 minutes or so we'll put out 283 um, and it is a very calculated run at trying to help people break free from the mind-warping spell that politics is. And again, the things we lay down there are provably true. Anyone could even take it further than we did if they wanted to. 
Um, we went back through things we've covered in other episodes, and there's a litany of new things that Jason added um, to the things that we cover. But the point is, is we got to start growing up, don't we? We need to yeah. see a, a, a better horizon here pretty quick because um, this is getting old. <laughs> to say the least, you know, living is easy with eyes closed, or it used to be, right? Mis- misunderstanding all you see, it's time to quit misunderstanding so many things. Yeah, no, I totally agree. You know, it's interesting, somebody just put in the chat here, let me see, Hillbilly Hebrew, does anyone sense that there's a component of what's going on in the world that may contain a panic in the elites due to their knowledge of an incoming natural phenomenon and they're scared shitless? I don't know if it's a natural phenomenon, but Crow and I have talked about this multiple times, actually, that there seems to be some element of like they're jumping the gun. Yeah, they're pushing too fat, too much too soon. Uh, Now, granted, most of the sheep have completely got along with it and they've been fortunate in pushing their plans, but it was a gamble, I think. We'll see. Yeah, it's always a gamble. You can see it when you when you learn to, to get a little higher sense of understanding um, and I, I told you two places. Go back and look up that Mary Tyler Moore clip from, I think, the 70s, where they're singing the Paul McCartney tune with a little luck. We can make this whole damn thing work out. Watch the jerseys. Watch your hand motion. And, and they're basically saying, look at the George Bush uh, 2001, 91, 1991, I think, the, the New World Order speech Bush gives. He's saying, we've got a chance. We've got a shot. This isn't a done deal yet. But that whole kind of feeling and narrative changes after 2001. Even then, they ease up to where we are. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would say it wasn't until March till we saw such blatant uh, forward motion, you know, in the light of day, not really masked at all. Um, and yet so many people uh, easily cowed with fear. And I, as for the question, um, they, they know some natural disasters coming, so they're going to what, do all this to us? What sense does that make? If an astral disaster was coming, wouldn't you build a bunker so you could hopefully survive it and <laughs> everyone else is on their own so that'll take care of itself? Um, it, it doesn't, the, these things don't matter and here's why they don't matter. And we don't think this way, but we could think this way. Every single thing that's ever lived in this world has gone through the door called death. So why in the hell would we think that we're somehow exempt or that it's something to be afraid of? It's no different than birth. It's no different than life. Each and every living thing is going to do it. Um, So the point I would make is who cares if there's a natural disaster? Can we stop it? If the answer to that is no, then what damn difference does it make? So it's it's like that old saying from that movie, you know? get busy living or get busy dying which yeah. which one of those things you want to do right now people are getting busy dying they're, they're distancing themselves as if someone buried them six feet underground their auras can't intermingle the communication at the kind of quantumish level that human beings used to have that's been kind of erased temporarily here my point is is what do we have to be afraid of really the only thing we really have to be afraid of is living a miserable life and slave as a slave. Other than that, there's really not a lot of things to be afraid of. We're human beings. We go on. And even if we don't, that doesn't matter. Because every flower, every rose, every cat, every bunny, every person, they were born, they lived, they died. And that's happening to each of us. So I, I would just say, what's what's the difference? Crow, do you want to answer the question I put in the chat there? And while you think about that, who is the author of the Spagyrics book that you're always referencing? Uh, 
Um, which well, book are you always basic, referencing? I'm not sure. The Basics Pajurics book, which is the alchemy of the plant world, would be uh, it's Manfred Junius. I hope I'm not mixing two guys together. The name is definitely Junius. I want to say Manfred, but now I'm kind of feeling like I'm pulling from two different alchemical sources. So the book is Pajurics by Junius, because every time an alchemist gets to a certain level of mastership, they usually take a Latin name. Um, that's the book. And it's it's wholly about what equipment you need and what you need to know to start doing basic alchemical procedures within the plant kingdom. But the whole point to that is is everything you do in a beaker or a hermetically, hermetically sealed container uh, can be applied to you as a human being, and that flies in the face of everything we just read. That's the whole point. The reason those processes exist is for the same reason there was a St. Christopher holding a baby Jesus in the front of every cathedral, because it was a path a human being can take to get away from the low 3D state we're in, basically. Um, oh, I see. You just posted it here. Question. I used to follow the hardcore punk bands in the mid-80s, and the what band were you in, Crow, and what bands did you like to know? Oh, um... Actually, I started in the 70s. By the time the 80s got here, um, it was pretty much new wave. I guess there was some of it still around. Um, the bands that we listened to back in the day when I was in my band were things like The Damned. A uh, guy that was in my neighborhood had a girlfriend who managed a record store, and we got a version of God Save the Queen before it was released in this country on 45, I think. One of the early things was uh, Mongoloid by Devo was another thing we got our hands on. And then it was just the typical stuff. We went through them all, the Ramones. Um, locally, where we used to play, there were things like the Crawdaddies, Black Flag. Um, we actually almost opened for Wall of Voodoo, but this other band beat us out. What were they called? They were called the Penetrators. That was a local band. Um, but that, too, was a construct, right? Um, in the same way, you know, I, I, I have my little safety pins on my jacket because I was brainwashed. It wasn't organic. It was put together. The Sex Pistols were fake as the Beatles were fake. And then they replayed the same game again with uh, Nirvana when grunge came along. That's just a different repertoire of the punk idea reestablished um, to bring down the vibe. You know, when all the garish colors of the 80s were ending, all of a sudden everything went very earth monotone. Man, there was there was no joy left in that party. And it's been that way pretty much ever since. So I would just point out that it's all a construct. Grunge was um, there to destroy the, the party of the 80s. Yeah, it was It was sad. It was un, unhappy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not, whether you like the music or not is irrelevant. Um, you know, I still listen to a lot of the bands. I just don't view them. I, it, the difference is, is back then I thought they were like rock and roll gods or something. And <laughs> I can never view it in that way. They're just dudes. And by the way, had Jason been raised from birth with everything he needed to be a rock star, he could have been Jimmy Page. Many people could have been Jimmy Page if they would have been given the support that put those people where they were. Um, it's nothing special. And the point I would make is what would be a world where if things organically bubbled up, wouldn't we end up getting better than we've had? Because there wouldn't be this idea of 440 or 432 or we're all going to sing about drugs this decade or we're all going to sing about anti-worst, you know, it would be individually what's important to people and things that stuck to the wall would actually have merit and value. And that's not what we've had. 
Um, we've had constructs that we've bought into and worshipped, by the way, and that too, worshipping the Beatles is another form of spiritual assault. Because if you went back to an older time, there would be ideas that your spiritual life is more important. You should spend all day thinking about these spiritual ideas to improve yourself out of this nasty-ass 3D reality um, that we find ourselves in that is often described as evil, the, the definition of evil, to have a body the way we do. Um, I'm just saying, can you argue with that? Should we really be worshipping Paul McCartney or anyone else, for that matter? Um, they're providing a little music, to put it in put it in perspective I guess well I don't know about you Crow but I get by with a little help from my friends I used to <laughs> I don't anymore <laughs> actually I used to get by with a lot of help from my friends <laughs> way too much help from my friends <laughs> some of those friends didn't make it because they gave too much help <laughs> alright gentlemen we're ready to sign off yeah, I think so, man. And we've gone like 20 minutes over now, so. Oh, yeah, I wasn't even paying uh, attention to the time. Good. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Have a very happy new year, and we will see you next week.
Oh, to see 